This episode of the Defunct Land Podcast has been significantly edited down for time. If you are interested in listening to a bonus episode of this interview containing more great stories and information, head over to patreon.com slash defunctland to learn more. When you wish upon a star. Now we want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. Disneyland. Just go to Action Park, there's no other park like it. Six Flags Great Adventure. It's not a world away. Paramount's Kings Island. We will officially open Universal Studios Florida. Hello, I'm Michael Eisner. Now, here is your host. Hi, and welcome back to the Defunct Land Podcast. My name is Kevin Perger. On today's show, I am joined by one of the most prominent figures in my most recent two episodes on Euro Disneyland. Imagineer Tim Delaney. Tim, how are you doing today? Doing great, Kevin. I look forward to having uh, this discussion. I am too. This is unbelievable that I have you on. I mean, honestly, I've interviewed people that have worked on the rides that I've talked about. Um, I've had people that have operated the rides, but this is the first time that I've been able to interview the head designer on an attraction that I've done an episode on. So I'm extremely grateful that you're here today, and um, I'm sure the audience is too. If you could only hear the applause. <laughs> well, okay, it'll be the first time I've gotten applause today, but that's, that's one okay. round a day. I'm looking forward to it. Looking one forward round to of it. applause every day. Yeah, at least at least one a day. Yeah. Well, to get started, um, I'm really curious about everything you did in the 34 years you were at Imagineering. Um, so if you could just tell me all of it, that'd be great. Everything I did. Yeah. Well, I, I can, I can. Let me see how quickly I can summarize it. Yes. Yeah, so let me. So let me just say that I, I really did enjoy, you know, my 34 years at Imagineering. It was really quite an extraordinary place to be and an extraordinary time. I started in uh, June of 1976. And at that time, I was working for a company called Wed Enterprises. This was before it became Imagineering. And, um, you know, at that time, it was basically uh, the Walt Disney Company had two parks. They had Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World. And so, you know, when I would tell people I work for Wed Enterprises, you know, they'd go like, what is, what is that? And I go, well, it's Disney. And they go, Disney? What? Oh, Disney, that, oh, that's that little cartoon studio over in the valley, right? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> And when you compare that at that time, the attitude compared to what the, you know, the Walt Disney Company media entertainment juggernaut that it is today, it's it's really quite, it's quite an amazing transition from one, you know, one company to, you know, to what it was then to what it was, what it's become today. And a lot of it has to do with, and, and what I feel extremely fortunate about the era that I worked in is that I, I worked with all the original theme park Disneyland designers who had Walt had handpicked. I mean, there was Herbie Ryman and Exitensio and Albertino and Clyde Coates and Ken O'Brien and all those guys, extraordinary talent, talented people. And at the time I was a young guy and I didn't know them for, you know, anything, but, but I have to say that, that it was really quite an extraordinary uh, time for me because although I wasn't raised as a, a, a huge, I mean, through my adolescence, I wasn't a huge, you know, Disney fan. Being raised here in Southern California, I did go to Disneyland quite often. And, um, and, and I will say that one of the things that launched me into my, which I now reflect back on, one of the things that launched me on my career is that uh, Walt Disney had a series of television shows about space travel. And when I was very young, I mean, like five or six years old, um, the Man in Space program came out, and which were three shows uh, that were produced by Ward Kimball. 
and there was Man in Space, uh, Man in the Moon. And I think there's another name for that one also, but um, and then Mars and Beyond. And I have to say that even at a very young age, I was really kind of hooked on, you know, futuristic things. I wasn't a big fan of, I was like, okay, Tomorrowland, Fantasyland, Land, okay. But when it became, you know, Tomorrowland, you know, that's the, when I watched the television show and what would come out, I was immediately hooked on that. And I, for some reason, I just had kind of, I didn't realize it then, but it really kind of set me on this pace of, 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 of doing what I ended up doing. And, and the reason it did that is because when I watched these television shows, I was completely fascinated by the concept that Walt Disney could get his artists together, take a subject and create that subject on his television show that was so realistic that 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 I thought it was real. As a matter of fact, I said something to my mother, like, what, what, have we gone into outer space? You know, I think it was six years old or something like that. And she goes, no, 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 no. I, I think Mr. Disney just made that up. And I was like, he just made it up, but it seemed so real. And once you, when it, it, at that time, when, when I started realizing that when you, you could visualize something and you, once people see that visual, then they suddenly believe that it can be real and it can be true. And that was really the basic foundation of my entire career. Um, I, at a very young age, started drawing, and I would. My parents let me just draw on the walls. I did these huge chalk drawings of cars and things on them on my walls in my in my room. And um, you know, but I didn't have any formal training until I got to college. And uh, but the whole thing of like doing futuristic things, I watched every futuristic movie. You know, I saw every everything that you know that would come out. And 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 what I loved about the Walt stuff is that it was very entertaining, it was very educational, and it didn't all have monsters in it. It was actually kind of very positive. So so I um, to make a long story short, I ended up going through my high school and then end up uh, after a couple of years of college going to Art Center College of Design here in in Los Angeles. And that was a big, huge turning point for me because that's where I really learned how to draw and paint and, and create things that had never been seen before. I was an industrial designer. So, um, so that kind of launched me in my career. And, and, what, and what happened at that time is – and it was really an unusual thing too is that I, um, I got out of school and I started working for several design companies. And one of my instructors who I'd had three years beforehand – you know, I'd been out of school for three years. He called me and he said that he was looking for someone who had my skills of drawing and designing and all that. And he worked for Wed Enterprises. And I was like, okay, I didn't even know what Wed Enterprises was. And he explained, well, they're the division that does all the work on the theme parks. Mostly they've been doing work, a lot of work for Disneyland. And, you know, obviously uh, the Magic Kingdom of Florida. <clears throat> so I was like, eh, well, you know, I don't know. You know, and so I wasn't really that interested in working there. Uh, I was in another business at the time. And then six months later, I was interested and they weren't. And then six months after that, we mutually got together and I started working in 1976. And just as it, just as I had actually walked into Art Center and found, oh, my God, this was you know the school for me. I walked into this place and I was completely amazed because here was this enormous facility in Glendale. Glendale, California. Uh, there isn't one name that says Walt Disney Imagineering or Wet Enterprise. Or not even, nothing even says Disney on it. Not one sign says Disney on it. And it's actually a very difficult place to get into. I mean, it's almost impossible to get into. But the buildings are just these random industrial, ugly industrial buildings. 
and I couldn't even find it on my first interview. So, so I finally, I finally got there and I interviewed and I showed my stuff and, um, and, you know, lo and behold, they hired me and, uh, it was pretty amazing. I, I, I will tell you that, um, what, what I was hired to do is I, I was hired in the graphics department. And the graphics department was very involved in doing a lot of signage. And they also did a lot of work when corporate sponsors, as many people here know, corporate sponsors come to Disney attractions. They have to put, you know, whatever the name of the attraction is presented by, you know, Kodak or or Bank of America or whatever it is. So the graphics department used to do a lot of that. Plus, they used to do a lot of the posters. So I did all the illustrations for them and, and um, a lot of design work. You know, from my design, the, the, we were building Space Mountain at Disneyland at the time, and I did the Starcade, and so I just started doing that. And and the one thing that I will say that I had this insatiable curiosity, to be honest with you, when I had this opportunity to be inside Wet Enterprises, um, they used to have like every day at ten o'clock, obviously at noon and at three o'clock, they would have breaks. Ten o'clock and three o'clock, they'd have these breaks. I spent Every second that I was not in my office, walking around, looking at every division that was there, Mapo, the construction company, was on the 1401 flower lot. And I went and I introduced myself and I met people and I met Herbie Ryman and I met, um, you know, all the great all the great guys, you know, John Hench and Marty Sklar was running the company at the time. And, um, you know, it was, it was quite extraordinary. And, and I ended up meeting and finding all the people that I had looked up to when I was, you know, I, I remember working with Ward Kimball and I told him it was just, you know, Ward Kimball was just a, a crazy guy to work with. Uh, but he was the one that was a producer for the man in space programs for a while. And, um, so it was, you know, it was really quite rewarding. It was really quite, quite fun to do that. So, um, you know, I I started working. I started working, like as I said, for the first year I started working, and um, uh, and I and I realized that when I went around and I visited all of these guys, and a lot of them, uh, you know, a good example would be, uh, uh, you know, Sam McKim. Sam McKim was a great artist, and he was a great cowboy artist. He'd been a cowboy child star. And a lot of these guys who were originally the older guys working on Disneyland were really, really great artists, but they weren't contemporary guys. And I had my portfolio filled with space paintings and robots and all this other stuff. And, uh, and so um, I decided that I, although I was working there at Imagineering, um, I went home every night and I started working on a new portfolio and I started doing you know, different kinds of illustrations because the rumor had been out that in uh, that um, that the company was actually going to go into a new project called Epcot Center, and I thought, oh, this is great! You know, I love to do this. It's all, it has Future World and it has World Showcase, and you know, it'd be great. I'll stick in the Future World side. <laughs> so uh, I went in and I did that, and I spent a year doing that. And then I went to my boss, the guy who had hired me, the instructor I'd had at Art Center. And I just said, hey, uh, you know, I really think I could do more for the company. And I'd like to show my portfolio to John Hench and Marty Scalar and all the other management people here. So they were like, they were like, and he was like, yeah, I guess, I guess if you want to, you can. <laughs> so I said, all right, I set meetings up. So I set these meetings up with these, you know, the people who are running Imagineering. And I started showing my portfolio. And right in the middle of one, the first time I did it, you know, Marty, Marty said to me, uh, 
you know, and John, they're both looking at me like, don't you already work here? I said, uh, yeah, I do already work here, but I think I could do more. I think I could do more things for you, you know. So um, lo and behold, about two weeks later, I was laid off. What? Was it Was it because <laughs> of the meeting? No, 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 no. I would I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. Uh, I would just say like they came. You know, my boss said, "Oh, look, we ran out of work. We just don't have any time for you, or you know, we don't have anything for you." And so I said, uh, "Okay." So I I had been doing a series of Space Mountain paintings, you know, uh, poster paintings. I took those off the wall and I went and talked to the man who was running Epcot Center and I said, "You know, I think I could really help you, you know, but I've just been let go." So they gave me two weeks severance pay and I went home. And a week later, I get a call and said, come on back. They moved me upstairs into the concept design area. And I was about, my office was about, I would say, maybe 10 or 12 feet away from Herb Ryman's. And so I had that office for about six years. And I just worked on concepts. And I just started drawing and drawing and drawing and drawing for Epcot Center. They would just say, this is kind of what we want to do. What would you do? And so I started drawing. And I did all these rough sketches and... And I have, you know, I, I have millions of paintings and drawings that I had done there. And it was really quite exciting to do that. And so, and Herb Ryman, you know, Herbie was, you know, was such a saint. You know, he, you know, Herbie has the most important drawing in the Walt Disney Company. And that's that original drawing of Disneyland. And, but Herbie was just a great guy, an amazing guy. And, and I got to know these talented people. And I was, and I feel very, very fortunate that that, that happened, you know, because these are the guys who are like, working for Walt directly, you know, and, uh, and I had a chance to work with them. And over the years, you know, they all began fading away. But I worked on overall concepts for Epcot Center, and then I shifted gears and, and went into uh, developing the Living Seas Pavilion. And so that's that, and I ended up doing and producing and designing the Living Seas Pavilion and um, opened that up in 1985. And so, um, that was, you know, it was really a great time. It was a very exciting time at Imagineering because Epcot was a, you know, no matter what we all think of it today, good, bad, or indifferent, or how it's changing, whatever. But when you go back and you think about the difference between the Magic Kingdom and what Epcot Center is all about, it was quite extraordinary. It was, um, you know, ride systems that had never been invented before. I mean, the energy pavilion was just amazing. And trying to get that ride to go inside the ball for Spaceship Earth and, you know, we created the world's largest saltwater tank for the Living Seas Pavilion. And, uh, you know, it was just it was just an amazing thing. And, you know, I know that there were challenges with it and there were probably cost overruns and all that. But there was a it was a really good but amazing rookie team that was working on it. I mean, I was one of the younger ones working on the project. But, you know, we didn't have a lot of we didn't have a big creative staff at all. And um, and, you know, but we had to do something. And I think that, you know, the the spirit of Walt was watching over us. And, well, uh, but before we get into Epcot and all of that, I want to ask a question real quick about your early days at Imagineering. Um, you said you walked around during your breaks and you looked at all the different uh, technology and all the different concepts. Uh, what was something that stood out to you that might be recognizable to uh, theme park fans or Disney fans? What did you see that might have later been implemented, but you saw it you know, before it was uh, produced? Okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> That's a really, I have to tell you, that's a really good question because I have a really good answer about that. I was over at MAPA one day and I was going through, um, 
Oh my gosh, what's the name of it? Uh, I was going through. Did they call it Pelican Alley? I don't know. They 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 had this whole long line. It was almost like a production line of animatronic figures. You know where they would be assembling when when Disney was doing a lot of animatronic figures. And I I'd go through there and I just talk to the guys because I love mechanical things on top of being able to draw. I was I used to work on. You know, my brother and I used to build cars and hot rods and all that stuff. So I love mechanical things. And I had gone by this one guy's desk a couple of times. Hey, what are you working on? And he he kind of he kind of looked at me like, you look like you're interested. He says, uh, hey, you want to see something here? So yeah, I go, yeah. So I go over to his workbench. They had these big giant workbenches, you know, with all kinds of you know lathes all over the place and soldering guns and nuts and bolts and all this stuff. And there was a head there that was covered in fabric, you know. So he goes, he kind of does a look, you know, kind of a furtive look left and right, you know. And he says, oh, here, I want to show you this. So he takes the head off, and it's a pirate head. And he picks up a microphone, and he starts talking into it. And when he starts talking to it, the mouth starts moving. I said, this is fantastic. I mean, you really can do this? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is typical of what you would find in those days. He says that somebody who had a real interest was really smart, just decided, wouldn't it be cool if we could just like talk into a microphone and the animatronic figure would talk? Okay, now I'm talking, this is like 1978, okay? This is a long time ago. And and so I said, this is fantastic. Like, what are you going to do? Like, and he goes, oh, you know. He eventually left the company and started his own big animation company. And, and he, he obviously, whatever he had developed belonged to the Disney company, you know, and they probably, and, and, I'm, and I'm certain that they've used it. But <clears throat> I would go back into my office and I'd go, hey, have you seen what uh, Bob, I'll call him Bob, see what he's working on over there? Gonna, and and most of the people who had been there for a long time, it was kind of a lazy, I used to call it the lazy W, you know I mean? It, I mean, I'm talking, these guys have been around, for, a lot of these guys have been around for a long time. And there was a new energy that was coming into the company. But I was like, hey, did you see what, what's his name? He's working on that, you know, animatronic figure. I'm like, no, don't know. I don't know what he's doing. I have no idea what he's doing, you know. And, but, but you know, again, if, if I could give, and I'll probably give it a couple more times credit, but if I could say of all the things that, I was fortunate enough to do is to work with really extraordinary people. I mean, uh, you know, if, if you, if you kind of step back and, and you consider that Walt Disney Imagineering encompasses like 150 different disciplines and you're talking about, you know, you're talking about lighting people, engineering people, um, you know, recording artists, model builders, sculptors, you know, these are the best people in the world. And, and it was really so amazing to work with. And so when somebody has their own motivation to do something, you know, it's kind of cool to, to see them do it. And, you know, I, I don't know why he was being, you know, he had his own reason for being kind of secretive about it. But I was, you know, for some reason he felt compelled to show me the secret. So, you know, I, I think there are lots of things that you find out. There were a lot of people who, um, you know, one of the insights that I would give to, to other people about Imagineering is that you generally find that whatever somebody does, it's usually their hobby, which has got, which got them there. You know, you might find guys working in the, in the, the, the special effects department and you find out that they're magicians, some other place, or, you know, people who are in the costume department work on, you know, theatrical shows in the outside world. So everyone kind of brings their personal interests and their personal disciplines to, you know, to what their work was about. And that's why it was really, you know, it was really focused and crafted, you know, about people's skills and people's people's love for what they were doing. You know, it wasn't necessarily they all went to 
school, you know, all the time, but, um, uh, you know, to learn something, but they, they just had some innate desire to want to learn how to do something. I think about those kind of guys and they were just amazing people to work with. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That, that definitely answered my question. Now we can go on to, um, Epcot. Okay. So did you, did you just work on the living seas pavilion for Epcot or did you work on other things? Well, I, I worked on almost all of the attractions. See, I did all, a lot of the overall design. I did, um, you know, a lot of point of view drawings when they were just trying to figure out what Epcot was. Not, not, not um, what I'm saying is regarding the, uh, the placemaking of it, uh, not the content so much. I mean, I designed things for all. I didn't do anything on, I didn't do anything on imagination. That was mostly Tony Baxter and his team. But I think I worked on something for the energy. I mean, interior drawings. And I, there was a whole ending to the uh, World of Motion ride, which you went through this. There was this whole kind of futuristic city made out of metal. And we had fog effects and all that. And I had designed all of that. And um, God, what else? There was, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure, and you know, whenever they would actually need something to like, like Epcot was mostly a lot of the story themes were cavemen to space shuttles. So when it came, to, they had a lot of good caveman people who could do all that and the historical stuff. But when it came to the more futuristic stuff, I ended up doing a lot of spacecraft and a lot of, I mean, I, I did a, a lot of the renderings and designs for those kinds of things. It's just, you know, I guess because I was interested in, I was younger and, you know, I mean, you know, I was kind of like, hey, let's go. I mean, I was a huge space fan. You know, I was a huge, huge, let's go. I mean, from the Apollo, the whole man in space or the whole, um, you know, from Gem Mercury, Gemini, all, all that. I was a huge, I, I was a big fan of that. And I, and I still follow it quite closely today. But um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, it, but, but the, the one that I actually took from the day we put, you know, the first sketch all the way through. And there was a previous iteration of the, of the Living Seas Pavilion that was had a big giant ride around the tank, but a lot of that they just couldn't afford to do anymore. So I came in at that point, and from those first sketches to all the way to the day that we cut the ribbon, I, that's what I did on mostly project. Most of, my, most of my projects were taken from the very initial concept sketches all the way through to the, to the opening day, you know. Um, that, was just, that was just what I did. So. Okay, so you're there during the development of the Living Seas. So, so what was the Living Seas going to be if it wasn't what it became? It, it, it was, um, and again, I it, this was a. I think Tony Baxter had worked on it, and John Olson, and um, they had some other guys working on it. But, but the tank itself was 200 feet or 200 feet in diameter, and then the ride went kind of on the outside of it, but you never saw the tank. The last view was going to be as you're going in there. And it was a very much, a very, very kind of fantastic, fan, you know, kind of oversized, um, you know, kelp and oversized elements of undersea. And it was very lyrical and it was a, a musical kind of, you know, tribute, I guess, to the, to the, to the, to the rhythms of the oceans and things like that. So, um, you know, it was very fanciful. But what happened is that for some reason I got caught in working on these projects, and you're going to hear about it for Disney, for Disneyland Paris or Euro Disneyland, depending on how you want to call it, uh, where the projects would start out and then they ended up, you know, having problems. And so um, the the Living Seas Pavilion, they realized that they had to, like, we can't spend that kind of money anymore. The pavilions were, you know, costing more than the $35 million sponsorship fees. 
And so they had to start all over again. So they just said, we can't afford this ride going on the outside. So, you know, for the Living Seas Pavilion, we didn't, the things didn't really kick into gear until we got a sponsor and United Technologies was the sponsor. And um, they were interested in more of a space pavilion, but we had developed the Living Seas Pavilion. So they just wanted to be in as soon as possible. So they didn't ask them for, you know, they didn't ask them for the $35 million. They asked them for probably twice that. I think it was something like twice that. And they, they paid for it. And so we actually got a bill. You know, there's another story. Do you want to hear another story about George Lucas? I can tell you a story about George Lucas. I am always up for a George Lucas story. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. So, so, um, I was, I was always trying to pitch to do a space pavilion. So star Wars had come out in May of 1977. And, um, and, uh, I'm not sure that I've ever told this story on a podcast. So you'll, this is a real coup for you. Um, so, so about a year after it opened, it was probably the summer of 78. Um, Marty called me and said, listen, can you come to, you know, tomorrow afternoon, we're having a meeting with George Lucas. We want to talk to him about, um, uh, doing something with a space pavilion. So I said, right, great. So uh, it was John Hench, Marty, me, a guy by the name of Gene Johnson and George were just in Hench's office. And Marty, you know, said, Hey, we were thinking about doing a space pavilion, George, would you want to, you know, help us on this? And, and this was, George was Lucas. George Lucas was kind of like little George Lucas. This is before he became big George Lucas. I mean, it was after star Wars, but you know, these guys all became super celebrities as those movies moved on. So I remember in one conversation, George says, well, if we're going to do a space pavilion, um, at the end of the pavilion, you would have to meet an alien. And I knew this was never going to fly because Epcot was not meant to be a theme park. Right? So anyway, we end the meeting. We end the meeting and we go our magic ways. Okay. This was a Thursday afternoon. So I had, uh, I was going to San Francisco on, on Friday. So, I go to the airport, go to the Burbank airport, and I'm waiting to go to San Francisco. I had a girlfriend that had lived up there at the time. And I see George leaning against the wall. So he looks at me, he kind of nods like, hey, you know. So I said, you know, I walked over to him and we were about to go on the airplane, you know. And I said, hey, mind if I sit with you? I want to talk with you. And he goes, sure, yeah, come on, sit down. So at that time, there were all these discussions that were going on about like, how bad Ron Miller was because he turned down Star Wars. And, you know, when you sit at the patio at Imagineering, people talk about all this stuff and goodness and badness and all this stuff. So I sat there and I made a mental note to myself. I said, I'm, this is my opportunity. You know, I'm going to ask him because people are like, oh, these, Dizzy was terrible. They turned down Star Wars and all that. So I said, George, I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> I want to ask you a question. Um, did you bring Star Wars to Walt Disney, the Walt Disney Studios? And, you know, because I'm thinking, I'm going to get the, I'm going to get it from the horse's mouth. I'm going to get it right, right answer. And he goes, yeah, I did. He says, I did. I'll tell you, I had brought it because I was always admired the Walt Disney Studios when I was growing up. And it was just like, you know, like all of us, you know, we, we loved all the kind of magical creative stuff that Walt Disney did. And he was always an inspiration. He was an inspiration to George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and all those guys. He says, yeah, I did bring it to the studio, but I already had made my deal at 20th Century Fox. So I'm thinking, oh, no kidding. So when I sit in the patio next time, people go, Ron Miller's an idiot because he turned down Star Wars. I go, not so fast. Not so fast. So I got it from the horse's mouth. So if you want to, if you want to argue about it, let's just, you know, 
<laughs> so I felt like, oh, there you go. That was one. And I'm not sure that anyone really, I'm not sure that I ever, I ever told anybody outside of Imagineering that story. Well, I'm glad I could be the first. That's fantastic. Okay, so we talked about Epcot, and that's in the mid-80s. So we're now nearing production on Euro Disney and Euro Disneyland. Um, what did you do um, leading up to Euro Disneyland? And then kind of just take me into that project. Well, I, let's see. Um, so I started that, so I finished that in 85. And then we started, you know, that was you know, the beginning of 85. And so, um, so what did I work on? I was starting to work because we didn't start. We actually started developing a Disneyland pair or Euro Disneyland in 1986. And we spent a year working on it. And then it went on hiatus for a while because they hadn't they were in the process of negotiating things. And so we didn't really get going to, to develop sincerely. I mean, it was really a funded project, I would say, in 19 light like maybe the middle of 87 and, or 88, something or like beginning of 88, something like that. It must have been 87 because it takes five years to do those projects. So immediately after Living Seas, you know, I don't know, there was always something there was always something that I was working on. I have to go back and I don't really know what it was, but we really started working on. And I, and once the opportunity came up, I raised my hand. I thought, I want to go to Paris. You know, I want, I want to work on Paris. I, you know, it was great. It was, it was, um, it was, it was a great team. The energy in the company was phenomenal. Um, they could do no wrong. I mean, the management, whatever they touched turned to gold. And as I said, it was worth it because they changed everything about they brought in professionals, you know, and I mean, uh, uh, briefly going back to Living Seas Pavilion, I mean, Michael changed everything in terms of, you know, you, you earlier you asked me about IPs and things like that. Well, we all started complaining. We all started talking about that. You know, we like we don't have anything here. So that's where they changed everything. You know, Michael wanted Michael Eisner wanted like, how do we update the company? So that's where we brought in Michael Jackson. They brought in, you know, like. I'll give credit to Tony Baxter. I mean, he, Tony would say like, why can't we be Lucas? Why don't we get Indiana Jones? Why don't we do Star Wars here? Why don't we do this? And so, um, you know, and, and I, those guys were not, Eisner and Wells and those guys were not stuck in the old, old way of doing Disney thing because the old management was like Disney. If it isn't Disney, it has to be, you know, that's it. So they were like, Michael would be like, sure, bring in Michael Jackson. You know, sure, let's go talk to George Lucas. You know, we did, you know, Raider, I mean, you know, Michael Greenlit, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So he knew all those guys. So that's when things changed. And that's when that, that IP thing really, really changed. And now they don't, you know, they won't build a, you know, a hot dog cart without, a, uh, you know, with a theming, without theming to it, you know, a name to it. So, um, you know, I mean, they're redoing all my, and it's okay by me. They're redoing, obviously, they're redoing everything at Paradise Pier that I did for, you know, for Pixar Pier. And, um, you know, I'm okay with that. Actually, I thought, I always thought DCA should have been a whole Pixar thing anyway. But um, absolutely, I've said that many times. The whole park should just be Pixar. Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, no, but, but you're getting me distracted. You mentioned <laughs> California Adventure, and I'm going to get off on a tangent. But let's just go back to, uh, well, let's eventually get into Space Mountain. So, did you have a fascination with this ride, you know, Space Mountain in general, the originals? Um, I do, but, you know, sometimes when you love something a lot, you also realize, how can we make it better? Um, so one of the reasons why I, I the, the reason um, I probably did like Space Mountain so much was because when I first started in 76, I worked on the Space Mountain here at Disneyland, and I did part of the Space Mountain complex 
um, was uh, they, they had wiped out a whole section of Tomorrowland and they built Space Mountain with a big stage in front. And then if you look in plan view, the stage and the seating area was flanked by two major wings. One of them was a restaurant and the other one was an arcade. And I did the Starcade. I did. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop you right there because this is I just want to note this. This is the one of two that I know of and I'm compiling a list of arcades that I believe exist solely for puns in Disney. Um, oh, really? The Starcade oh, really? and the Arcade, <laughs> which is on the which is on the cruise ships. But but I I know you the I'm sure the I know the Starcade which is no longer there, right? Uh I don't think I don't think it's even open. I you know, I haven't seen it. But the, there is like an a, like a 100 foot long painting that uh a mural that I did that I think is still there. I didn't paint it, but I, I mean I did the concept work where I did the painting of it and then um there were some scenic people who painted. But I I think some of the stuff may still be there. I don't know. I I, I I tried getting rid of it several times, to be honest with you. Um, uh, the the, the Starcade, Star I tried painting. Uh, the reason is because I wanted to do something. I, I wanted to make a change for the Space Mountain at Disneyland. I wanted to make a complete ride change. For that. Can you, can you t- talk to me about this? Because now that you mentioned it, it's a rumor, like I was talking about earlier. So let's, <laughs> tell me about your what your plan was for this change. Okay, well, this is one of those ones that didn't happen, right? I, maybe I should have included because I keep forgetting about this. What happened is that Space Mountain opened in 1977 or 78, I guess it was. And, um, and oh, so let me just finish that story, first of all. One of the reasons why I loved it is that uh, there was an industrial designer who I worked with, an, an older, or he was older than I was, uh, a guy who uh, was the uh, art director on it. His name was George McGinnis. And George did all the design work for the Space Mountain down there. And walking into the load unload area with the spacecraft hanging up above you, and it was like it was like walking into a real movie set. And I still, when I think about it, it was I have such fond memories of that, you know. And I was doing another part of it, and and it was about, I would say maybe it was about a year, no, maybe about eight or nine months before Space Mountain at Disneyland opened. So I could go in there and I could, you know, walk around and, you know, look at the rides and look at all the design that George had done. And it was fantastic. So that, that's one of the reasons why I brought it up. But there was a certain there were certain elements to that ride that I just had never loved. And, and I fixed it. I fixed it when I did the Space Mountain in Paris. One thing I didn't love, and, and I, I must have been the Lone Ranger on this because, you know, but what I loved is I didn't love the three lifts getting you to the top. Okay. I was like, you go up, lift, lift, lift. And I just, I went, no, if we're going to go to space, I want to be shot to the moon. That's what I want. Um, because I wanted to do a catapult launch on everything that I have done because it was, you know, the Space Mountain in Paris in terms of a catapult launch connected to a full length roller coaster. That was the first one. Now that, that ride system was a ride system that was, that was developed by a, you know, Vekoma or somebody as it just, a, it was, a, a it, not very far in the head of this ride called Montezuma's revenge, which is just, it was a cable driven system. It launched a train into a loop and up and then, and then ran out in terms of a, a the track just went higher and higher and higher, went through that, and then it went backwards through the loop again, back into the station. That's what it did. I remember writing it, and I'm like, hold on a second. If you're taking a passenger, I mean, you're taking a train that's got, I don't know, uh, how many would it be, like 24 passengers on board, um, and you launch it, and it goes into a loop, and then you, the track runs out, and then you just kind of run the energy out, certainly you have enough energy to launch you to the top of the space mountain and drop you down. And so... 
And so that's what that that's was that was a campaign that I pitched, you know, for doing Space Mountain in Paris. But going back when when there was going to be a big renovation of of Disneyland Space Mountain, the track had just fallen apart. I mean, it was just a disaster, right? And they were going to just scrap the just throw the you know gut the building and start all over again and for space, for Disneyland. So I said, well, wait a minute. Why don't we do something else? And so this comes back to what I was saying about the art, the Starcade. What I wanted to do was have everybody load in the Starcade, and then the Starcade would go out, or the, excuse me, the, the the vehicle, the train would go out of the Starcade on a raised platform, kind of like where rocket rods used to be, and around the rocket jets, and then went back in front of Space Mountain, over by where. Um, where, where the old Mission to Mars was, where it, it's where the pizza place, Pizza Planet is right now. And then I was going to shoot it into the mountain. So then you would you would have the entire mountain for track. And that's what we do in space in Paris. You know, it's the same size building. So we didn't have the load and load. Load and load was outside, you know. And so I did a track layout and, you know, there was, and I said, you know, you know, but I had opposition at, at, WDI. I mean, there's always there are people who are traditionalists, and um, I don't know. We got to keep the same thing, keep the same thing. But then I had somebody take my drawings over to the studio, and they were talking to Eisner. And then once they spent all the money to get it done, Eisner was the first one to say, "Well, if you spent all that money, why didn't you just make a different ride?" So, you know, but they didn't. You know, it was fine, and people loved the ride. I mean, they, you know, I still kind of like, I, I still love the ride. It's nostalgic for me, so I'm I, I'm okay with it. I'm you know, it's fine, it's fine, and they've done. You know, the the Star Wars, you know, whatever the big the, the big Star Wars overlay for it is, you know, it's great. So I mean, it's and it and it's a much you know the track is a lot better and all that. But it was it was that was that motivation for doing Disneyland Paris's uh, uh, Space Mountain over there. So that was, I you know that's whenever you want to start on that, we can start on that. <laughs> so yeah, so from the beginning when you heard about the Paris project, you you were the one that said I want to go to Paris, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, Tony was like talking to, you know, Tony Baxter was kind of the, the creative executive involved in, in charge of it. And he wanted to pick the people he wanted who had real theme park experience. Because to me, I think Disneyland Paris, in terms of the actual design and opening day attractions and the number of E attractions and all that, I think it's the best park we've ever done. Um, it's really a kind of a sad thing that it hasn't performed. It hasn't performed like it should. But in terms of the design, you know, um, it's it's pretty it's really great. I mean, you know, Tom Morris did Main Street or uh, uh, Fantasyland. Eddie Sato did Main Street. Um, brilliant job. I mean, Eddie turned Main Street into an attraction. It's so beautifully done. Tom, you know, I think the castle over in Paris is the best one ever. And Chris Teets did a great job on Adventureland, really kind of a, you know, kind of much more integrated kind of land than they've ever done before. And. Jeff Burke was um, Frontierland, and um, it was a great group to work with. The company was the Walt Disney Company was just you know everything it touched it turned to gold. Um, Michael was deeply involved. Frank was deeply involved, and and it was a great great project. I mean it was it was great to live over there. It was great to you know spent five years in Paris, and um, you know it was you know it's like I, I I wasn't working I wasn't there full time full time I was send you know I my wife and my kids were really tiny you know my daughter was like three years old and then my son you know we were there for a long time but I was there 
oh, maybe six to seven months a year for five years. And then the last was almost full time. You know, I guess I was going back and forth because I had all these other projects to, to work on. So I, I wasn't there full time. And there were issues about people, you know, full time people are really expensive to to uh, to uh, patriate over there. You know, so anyway, but but more importantly, I think just doing Discovery Land, the whole concept of Discovery Land was like the most, you know, fun thing to do because, um you know, we've done so many Tomorrowlands and we all get we all get tired of, you know, they all become yesterday lands as soon as you open them. But we decided collectively, we decided that if we're going to go to Paris, you know, and we do this all the time, we, we, we kind of focus the project themes, you know, most of the park, because Walt had pulled all of his stories from Western Europe. It was um, kind of easy to do. Fantasyland is all built in. You know, those are all the stories. Um, the, the Europeans are fascinated by the old West. So Frontierland was a slam dunk. Um, Main street, I think, uh, was, as I said, Eddie Soto turned into a terrific attraction, uh, in terms of things to do. And it was more than just like a passageway and retail and, 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 um, food. It was, there were more activities going on there. And then Adventureland really had its own unique, uh, feel to it. And I think it's because pirates anchored it and they made, more of the treehouse was more, much more of an attraction and all that. But for Discoveryland, it was taken away from, we got rid of these, the Tomorrowland name and wanted to do something about, you know, really dedicated to the great European visionaries of Europe, you know, Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. And, and so out of that, what I did is I developed a system and I actually did this some really interesting analysis of the parks when I, because when you think about the parks, if you look at Frontierland, or if you look at Fantasyland, or if you look at Adventureland, those are a collection of those stories, whether it's the stories or different cultures, whether it's part German or part Italian or for Fantasyland, or if you go to um, the Old West, you know, there's there's the conventional Old Western town, and then there's the desert section. And, and what all the lands were, traditionally, all the lands were a collection of what that subject happened to be. Adventureland was a collection of exotic ports, right? But Tomorrowlands <clears throat> had a tendency to end up being one thing, you know, it's one vision of the future. So I'm like, eh, you know, let's not do this. Let's do essentially, you know, a history of the future. So there was a Jules Verne future and there was an H.G. Wells vision of the future. There was a George Lucas vision of the future. And, you know, and, and so and so and, and then our Autopia ended up being what I decided to do in all of them is to say, like, if we're going to do a driving experience, what's the heyday of driving experiences? Well, it's those 1930s, you know, magazine covers of popular mechanics and popular science where, you know, and, 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 and Walt's old, um, you know, 1950s thing of Magic Highways, which was dreams of driving uninterrupted from Los Angeles to New York on a super highway. So everything about that theme was that vision of the future. So we weren't really trying to do something where it's one future in the future because the future, I mean, it's the old cliched line, the future isn't what it used to be. It, it really is, it, it's something where you really, really wanted to do this collection of things. So, so it had a tendency to work. We found the right attraction. So for the contract, the contract for Disneyland Paris um, stated that the French wanted to have a uh, a show, a dedicated show, and they designated it was going to be in uh, uh, Tomorrowland, but you know, Discoveryland. So it was, and they suggested, you know, this attraction would be a Circle Vision show. Well, if you know anything about the history of 
you know, circle vision shows, they actually have a, a, a limited life cycle to them. You know, circle visions are good for about five years, you know. And, and they're they, all mainly travel logs. Yeah, yeah, they're all kind of the same thing. And it's old technology. And yeah, right. And that's where they were. So I'm like, and they go, like, oh, okay, this is the, you know, and, and, you know, we got to have, you know, we only have funding to do this. You know, you have to do, you know, really, it's really, you know, really tough on, you know, how do you do something unique? So, uh, again, there's a lot of brainstorm that goes on. And we said, well, why don't we turn this circle vision thing into an attraction? So we took and made it into a kind of a big time machine, you know, the issue was time machine. And, and, and so like, well, how do you make it an attraction? Like, well, let's not make it just a movie. Let's put characters in it. So you put Dreamfinder in there and, and he had this whole time machine in the middle of the theater or, you know, to the one side of the theater. I mean, Timekeeper, right? Timekeeper. Yeah. What did I say? Did I say that? You said Dreamfinder. Oh my God, Dreamfinder! Did I say Dreamfinder? I really did. <laughs> yes. Oh my God! How did I ever get that? <laughs> That's funny. Oh my God! Thank you for correcting me. That Timekeeper, of course, Dreamfinder. Oh my God! See, my brain is actually going, you know, south on me. Um, so Timekeeper, you know, so I, so I, I actually designed the robot and said we're, you know, not going to put a skin on it. We're going to just put, you know, because I love the, the the acrylic. Thing and you know the, the the skin or the the structure the body of those things and so we'll put lights in it so our first meeting we, we were so we decided you know because robin williams was so you know so hot after aladdin you know uh, so we called in robin and uh we had i'll never forget this we had this meeting it was um tom Fitzgerald and carol chindo and myself and so we had this meeting with uh, Robin Williams, and it was on Mother's Day on a Sunday. And so he came in, and we just did a read-through on the whole thing. We were just sitting around like a table, and somebody, I think, might have been recording or something like that. So he was so funny. I mean, he was just amazingly funny and quick and fast, and I mean, he was really on his game and all that. So they had a script there. And, and we were all like laughing our heads off, you know, just him doing, you know, doing shtick with it. And then um, and so then he tried to do it in French. And then all of our French people said, you know, once they heard the recording, they said, oh, well, his French isn't very good. So he was out. So we got we got another actor to do it for Paris. But then he ended up doing it for, you know, Walt Disney World and all that. But it was it was the best show was in Paris. And 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 um, that was really quite special. Um, You know, we had, you know, the the, the pre-show, there was a lot of money in the pre-show and trying to tell that whole story. One of the problems we had in Paris, as a matter of fact, people would see the pre-show. As soon as the pre-show was over, as the doors were opening up, they would walk out of the the attraction. They thought that that was the show and it wasn't really very interesting. So we had to... Just the pre-show video? They thought that was the, that was like the whole thing? Well, it was the pre-show. It had this whole room, this whole kind of laboratory with these special effects in the ceiling and we had... Uh, it was it was really elaborate, and it was time, timekeeper on video, and he was he was telling about what we we're going to do. We we're going to go on this journey, and so uh, and then the doors went up, and, and there is the figure, and he's manipulating this whole time machine. Yeah, one of my all time favorite defunct attractions. Really want to do an episode on it sometime. Um, but also in Discovery Land, you have all these other attractions. I mean, you have. You have to put in Star Tours and Captain EO because those are the given, you know, you got to get Star Tours. It's an e-ticket. You have to get Captain EO. It's a huge hit with Michael Jackson. How do you fit that into your, you know, very Jules Verne, Victorian land? Well, first of all, the the thing, you know, you have to remember is that we were planning on having Space Mountain there in the middle of the land, you know, from the beginning. And it was the 100-meter diameter version of it. And then as the park as Disneyland or as Euro Disneyland was progressing, 
you know, they start looking at the books and they say, oh, you know, finally, um, we can't add that attraction. Okay, we just can't. There's just way too much money and needs way too much development. Later on in, you know, as we were progressing, I would say we were about a year out before opening. And I think my, or maybe a year and a half or so out before opening. And I think Michael Eisner and Frank Wells were getting very nervous that we didn't have enough capacity. We, they thought it was going to be enormously, um, you know, popular. And I mean, it, it, it was popular. I mean, it, 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 the park has always been popular. But what happened is that they got very nervous about it. So they decided to put a couple of hundred million dollars more into the park. And so um, so they, Tom Morris got some of it and I got the lion's share of it. And what I got was... Um, to put in the Nautilus. We did not have a Discoveryland train station, so we got that. And then they were still looking for more attractions. So I just said, you know, we, you know, I, I remember going to, I got called into a meeting at Marty's office with Tony and, you know, and they said, you know, we, we need to find more capacity. And I'm like, well, I can tell you an instant way you can find more capacity. On Star Tours, we have four bays, you know, and we left a lot of room behind it. So if you want to pick up instant capacity, just build two more bays and buy two more simulators and you have six bays. And it was a smart thing that we did at that time because, you know, it was an easy way to add capacity. And, um, you know, um, uh, they were already in production on it. So it was easy to do that. Um, to do Captain EO, we just knew that people there were extremely interested in Captain EO. It was a huge interest in, in, in France with Michael Jackson. So, I mean, you kind of, you know, once you build a theater like that, you know, you can always change the software out. You can change the movie out, but you need to have to, you know, you have to go somewhere with it and you want to make sure you have enough attractions and that are popular enough. And, but you know, a lot of it has to do with the budgets and you're always under scrutiny about how budgets and how close you are sticking to budgets. And those are the days where you had to stay on budget. You absolutely had to stay on budget. So, you know, we got enough out there. I mean, you know, Autopia came in, a little bit late, you know, uh, that was after opening. Uh, and then the other challenge that I had was um, there are corporate sponsorships that go on with all of these parks. And in Disneyland, Disneyland Paris, um, you know, there were a total of 11 corporate sponsors, 11 corporate sponsors. And um, I ended up having seven of them in Discoveryland. So Philips, or a Renault sponsored the Visionarium. Coca-Cola and Philips sponsored uh, the um, Videopolis. BNP sponsored uh, Orbitron and, and IBM was involved and Coca-Cola was involved and, and Mattel sponsored the Autopia. So, you know, that adds just another layer of complexity to the whole thing. You know, I mean, you know, that makes it a little tougher, to be honest with you. But did you ever just want to start over, you know, have a Discovery Land without Star Tours, without Captain EO, without Autopia? Or were those kind of existing attractions helpful? You know, it's it kind of doesn't. I mean, it, you know, it, it, <laughs> you have to understand. You have to understand how consuming these places, I mean, develop these attractions are. I mean, you, you, you get to a certain point, you make decisions, and they go, okay, here's our program. We're going to start with Star Tours. And I like Star Tours. I said, I don't want to make this all kind of old fashioned, you know, and that's one of the reasons why we justify doing, you know, kind of a different different futures. There was no question about that. But what, if you remember where they were, um, I they were placed on the other side of the track. So all you saw were the facades. Now, here's the one thing that's interesting about the art direction on this on this whole land. You know, yes, if you look at like if you look at the Orbitron, 
um, you know, that was designed to be not only, and it ended up being a very unique attraction. I mean, it was a bigger rocket ride, you know, it was just a roundy rocket ride. I would have preferred to put it on top of one of the buildings, but, you know, we just didn't have that opportunity to do that. But so I was able to get a, um, get the kinetic sculpture up on top to, you know, kind of be a, a like a, a, a planetary model or an astrolabe kind of feeling to it. But I didn't want everything just to be completely old. So Although everything was done in these beautiful brass colors and copper colors and things like that, if you if you look at the land and you look at you look at it today still, but even at that time you really see it, I edged everything in neon. So the neon kind of gave it this like like you know, like laser beam look to it. And and the reason for doing that is that I didn't want to be Victorian. I wanted it to be timeless. I wanted to take it out of, you know, like, oh, that's kind of that old thing, you know. So, you know, on, in front of the Visionarium show, we had these four spires that were going up. And there was crackle neon going in there. And it looked like energy was just being brought into the into the building. And that was what that was all about. You know, I, I wanted to take it away. It, it, the whole design motif there was really to be taken off of the classic kind of uh, uh, Griffith Park Observatory which is, has this kind of science lab to it. It's kind of like deco, deco style. And then we put these towers on it that have all this crackle neon, and it was really quite beautiful. And it just kind of gave the whole build, gave the whole land just a whole different color scheme. You know, again, when you when you are working on projects like a whole land, when you're in charge of a land, like I was in charge of the land, you know, there are certain programming elements that you're given, you know, in the classic sense of architecture, you know, you have programs and you have to have, um, you know, they, they, they always knew that in Tomorrowlands, you had the Tomorrowland Terrace and that's their big hamburger hot dog kind of thing. But there was also a tremendous need for entertainment. So, you know, I said, fine, I'll take it on, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do, we'll do this thing. And so, um, I, cause I immediately saw what it, what it could be. And, uh, I just said, you know, in terms of this whole kind of type of future thing, um, w one of the things that I wanted to do, and it's kind of a tribute to the old Discovery Bay uh, uh, design that, that Tony Baxter had done, is that I thought, why don't we just instantly turn this thing to, into some kind of a, a, a terminal for travel? See, if you remember everything about Discovery Land, I, there, if, actually, let me take that back. When you look at all of Disneyland Paris, one of the keys about Disneyland Paris was that we focused very clearly we focus on on things you know whether it's pirate ships and skull rocks and big thunder out in the middle of the lake and the castle and you know the orbitron and all that it was all about things and in discovery land i wanted vehicles so we had autopia you know tomorrowlands have always been the you know especially the one the original tomorrowland down at disneyland was a land on the move you know it was like you had between the monorail and the the phantom boats and the autopia and the and the Skyway and, uh, you know, it was everything about it was moving and all those things have been taken out. So, you know, Tomorrowlands are always about big, giant projects, you know, big, big uh, attractions. But I needed animation. So that was really the, what prompted all that animation in the Orbitron. But what I also want to do for, for Videopolis is that, you know, that airship coming out, you know, the airship from the island top of the world was kind of a Jules Verne story. So I said, why don't we put that right at that location? When you come down Main Street, heading toward the hub and you look through discovery land, you see that airship and here is this gigantic thing. And you know, when you go to a culture that not everyone speaks English, they all speak image, right? They all speak icons. 
So, you know, you're looking at this. So I have the X-wing fighter out there. We have the Nautilus submarine here and we have airspace and, you know, the air was the, the, the Hyperion airship and space was the X-wing fighter and the sea is the Nautilus submarine. You know, people, really, they love that because then it gives them photo ops and, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's architecture. You can make interesting architecture, but for some reason, there's something more compelling about doing vehicles. It, it's, it shows it's a place on the move. It shows that it's dynamic. So that facility was 50,000 square feet of dining and, and entertainment. And um, I'm not sure that they ever, I, I think they were successful in some shows in terms of the entertainment, but certainly the dining was there. And, uh, and huge covered spaces. And one of the reasons why we did a lot of that, and this goes also back to the original Discovery Land, or Discovery Mountain concept, was that we were actually trying to get people indoors more often. You know, like we had those, you know, the, 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 the walkways on behind Main Street, you know, that Eddie Sato did. And then, you know, I did this giant, you know, the Videopolis is just an enormous indoor dining experience, you know, it has multiple levels and it's got a stage and all that. And, um, you know, so it, it, we knew that the weather was going to be tough over there in the wintertime. So that's one of the reasons why we did it. So, you know, and on top of that, that building was so, you know, once we got it all kind of engineered out and structured, it was built like, you know, uh, Tinker Toys. It was built off site and they came in and they erected that thing in about two weeks. It just went, just went up like magic. I mean, it just it was it was fantastic to see that thing go up in the air, you know. Oh, for sure. I can imagine. Okay, so we've talked about pretty much everything in Discovery Land except for the big one. So I, I think I'm ready for the Space Mountain story. Okay, all right. The original concept, and as I mentioned, a little bit like Videopolis was really a big facility so we could get people indoors. So we decided to do a very large, what was to be called Discovery Mountain. And Discovery Mountain it was called that because we didn't want to just call it another Space Mountain. You know, Space Mountain, you know what Space Mountain is in Florida. You know what it is at Disneyland. You know all of these things. But we wanted to make something something really different because it was going to look completely different. And it was going to function completely differently. So, um, so, we, so I started doing this mountain, which was 100 meters in diameter, which is 330 feet. And it was so big that on the inside we had the Nautilus sitting in there. We had restaurants in there. I had a, a, a kind of a space shot attraction that shot you up out of the mountain and then would drop you back down again. And then above in the upper parts of the mountain was going to be a space mountain kind of ride. So you could look up into space and you saw the ride going. It was all above you. And there would be netting and all that so things couldn't fall on you and all that. And so it was a very ambitious project. You probably have seen, I, I did, I don't know how many renderings of it, but you'll find them in all the books. You'll see the Nautilus sitting, you know, lights flooding down on it and people inside the mountain. And I did all these, I did all these, you know, several renderings of it. And so as we all know, the Disneyland Paris, as it became after a period of time, uh, wasn't performing like the Walt Disney Company thought. In other words, it was the first stumble that the new Michael Eisner, Frank Wells administration had encountered, you know, um, for whatever reason. I mean, I, I personally think that there was just too much money put into the hotels. The theme park was actually doing pretty well, you know, um, did pretty well. But they were also having the, the, the uh, administration or the management of the Walt Disney Company was having problems with the, uh, the government of France and they had to pay them and it was becoming complicated. So I kept getting all these rumors like, well, we're not sure we could ever build that 100 meter diameter Space Mountain. 
And so I know that, you know, Tony was really hanging on to that idea. And, and I, you know, you, you get these late night meetings or you get, you get called into offices after work hours and they're like, Hey, listen, dude, you know, if we want to make this thing happen and we do need to make it happen, we need a major attraction over there for a second level. We need to start thinking about bringing this thing back down in size. And maybe we should just do a conventional space mountain, which was like a dagger to my heart. You know, I said, no, we just can't do that. So eventually short version is we just, I just started looking at what would, you know, what would a, a 62 diameter, 62 meter diameter space mountain look like in there. And it well, gave, well, before you go on to space mountain from the earth to the moon, can we talk about the coaster that was going to be in discovery mountain? Because, you know, you have the journey to the center of the earth drop tower, you have the Nautilus, you have all that, but you also still have a coaster in there. Can you, uh, can you touch on that for me? Yeah. From the earth. Yeah. It was, it was, you know, Jules Verne's story from the earth to the moon, which is, which is an absolutely amazing story. If you ever read it, I mean, it's just quite amazing how the way he wrote the story was a bunch of businessmen in, you know, after the civil war in 1865, they were all sitting around going, Oh my God, we're going to be out of business. So how do we, you know, stay in business? So they decided to build this giant gun and, and Jules Verne wrote the story and said, you know, and he placed the gun in central Florida you know, in a place called what he called Tampa Town, which is probably if you look at a map on the original books, you see that it's really closer to where Orlando is. And he said, you know, the only people who are ever going to do anything like this are going to be the Americans. And so, you know, he built this they built this bullet that somebody, you know, the the the, the characters were going to go inside this bullet. The, the cannon was buried in the ground and then was shot and shot in outer space. And then it's a little bit like the Milliers film where, you know, the the bullet goes into the moon's face and all that. But uh, the original story was really quite amazing because it was very close to what originally happened. And, and, and I think in the 70s, Look Magazine did a kind of a, uh, an image-by-image image d- uh, description uh, between the Apollo program versus also uh, what Jules Verne had done with the drawings there. And shows the guy's wait list, and it shows it going to the moon. And then when the when the bullet lands, it's sitting in the water and has an American flag coming out of it right next to, you know, like the Apollo or the, um, um, yeah, very close to what the Apollo uh, recovery missile or the, the, mis- the, uh, the capsule was all about. So, I mean, he was a great visionary, and it was a great story. So, um, yeah, so... We, we we just it, for me the whole catapult launch thing was just an absolutely necessary thing. I mean, I mean many people probably have had this idea. I don't know how it goes, but I I got it built and and it launched. I mean there isn't a, there isn't a coaster today that doesn't have a catapult launch in it, but that was the first one. And I just thought you know we'll just shoot it up and we'll go into the upper rafters of that building and I mean it, uh, 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 it was it was that building was actually bigger than the Space Mountain in in. Uh, in Florida. And so, but it was just too overwhelming. And, um, you know, if you had that space mountain of Disneyland's ride in a 330 foot building, there's a lot of ride, there's a lot of room around there. So people could actually go in to the mountain, go, go from directly from Videopolis into the mountain and never go outside. And it was always kind of a theatrical experience. The lighting was, you know, very moody and, and, you know, you, you saw a star field up above. And I mean, it was really meant to be much, 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 much more theatrical, you know? And, um, you know, it was, it was a tough decision to go away from that. It really was. It was, it was, it was difficult, but on the other hand, you begin to learn to understand if you want to create something then and you want to make it happen. Um, you know, a lot of times people don't want to work with you and, and the management says, 
you know, all right, then just put an old Space Mountain in there. And that would have been really, that wouldn't have worked for me. You know, I just didn't like that idea. So there's a reality comes in. And it's a lot, a lot of it has to do with the performance of the park. And, but you know what, it, it doesn't sound, I don't want to make it sound like this is something that never happens. It happens all the time. You know, anything in motion pictures and entertainment and theme parks, you know, you have to be, if you really want to build things in your life, you know, you really have to be responsible to the the good design and great stories, but you also have to be cognizant and aware of what the business side is about. And the business side, frankly, to be honest with you, is, you know, sometimes they just, like, we can't fund it. We just can't do that, you know. Um, so, you know, I was able to get the Nautilus submarine in, and that was kind of an interesting story, too. But that was prior, just the Nautilus was finished just before we finished Space Mountain, or the, the final Space Mountain. Also in the Discovery Mountain concept art, it shows people being able to, you know, watch the coaster as it goes. And this kind of came through. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, letting people see into the mountain? Yeah. Well, that was one thing I always thought was great. And that's why when we, you know, finally did the, the smaller Space Mountain, I wanted that walkway that went all the way through. Because, first of all, again, I wanted people indoors in case it was raining or snowing outside because the weather can be really inclement there. But the other part of it, there was a, the, the walkway was wide enough for people who didn't want to ride the ride. They could actually see the see the entire experience or or you could hear the ride. And it was all there was a lot of black light in there. And you saw the train go zipping by and you heard it and you heard people screaming. And it was great. I, I love the idea of the walkway through it. I think it was fantastic. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it's still there. They may have taken it out, but but it was fantastic, you know, because because it was elevated up about 20 feet. So wherever you were, you looked down and you saw Starfield below you. You looked up, you saw Starfield above you. So, you know, I mean, it was it was like the perfect situation. And, um, you know, I was just told you better figure something out, you know, um, because we we have a budget and there's a dollar budget for this, you know, so you got to stick with that. So. I had a great team, great project manager, you know, Doug LeBlanc, and I had a great, the engineering team on the, on the whole project was fantastic. The creative team was, I mean, they're really great people. We did a lot of special effects. The special effects teams did a lot of special effects inside there. I mean, we were going to do three loops inside. We did do three, three episodes where you're upside down and, we're engineering it and we had Vacoma come in. I think they did they did all the track and then we had to get the track done early because they were building the track and then we're gonna build the building around it. And um, so, you know, this was all part of the planning process. And the interesting story that focuses, that to me, one of the most memorable days I ever had there was when you work on a project in Imagineering, there's, there's probably every month you have a uh, project update uh, meeting. Uh, and what this is, is you, 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 you have these long, a long conference table and there's probably can be anywhere from 25 to 40 people in the room. And they're mostly management of the company. There's head of engineering. There's whoever the executive is in charge of the company or in charge of the project, uh, your project manager, your project team estimators. It's a, it's a massive monthly, um, endeavor that you have to go through there and so whoever's in charge you sit you know you sit right across from them and in this case it was a gentleman who was a great great leader and, and man by the name mickey steinberg and mickey was just a he was just a tough old bird you know he was a ex 
ranger kind of guy and uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty tough, pretty tough guy to deal with, you know, and he built a lot of projects, built a lot of projects for Portman and very experienced guy very and a great leader, a very military kind of guy, kind of like a general Patton. And I admired him a lot. It was great. So for months, we'd go into these meetings and the budget was set at, I think it was $90 million or something like that. And every month we would come in there and we'd be at $94 million you know, 94, 95, you know, 96, 92, 91. And then you spent the entire month and you'd beat it down and then it would bounce back up again. And then every meeting we'd go to was like, oh, God. And they were just like, how do you, you know, how do we get it there? So this one meeting, and this was the most memorable meeting for me, is that I walked into this meeting, sat down, put all your papers down, you're looking across, and I start my presentation, you know, and it was going to be my usual I don't know why the, the costs keep creeping up. I really don't know why the costs keep going. And Mickey looked across me and he goes, stop. Just stop. I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear, you, I don't want to hear your speech anymore. Just stop. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. This afternoon, I'm going over to the studio and we're signing an author. I'm getting the studio to sign an authorization for you to do this project at $90 million. All right. I don't care what space mountain you build. All I care you all I care about is two things. One, you keep this on program, you give me the attendance, you know, you give the capacity, excuse me, the capacity one. And you cannot go over budget. All right, now get the hell out of here. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> I guess we have a project. And so um, you know, I looked at my project manager and I mean the word went out, you know, it's like and so one of the reasons for doing this is because Space Mountain, because, because Disneyland Paris had not been performing like they'd wanted it to, but they needed a major attraction, all right? So that launched us, and we watched every penny. And I prioritized where I wanted, we made decisions in the team, like where are we gonna, where, where are the things we can build? And if, you know, if we can add something later, we'll add it later. But there are certain things you had to build. You had to build, I wanted the catapult launch. I wanted the onboard sound. Uh, the onboard audio is something that, Tom Morris had been playing with for years with his little Walkman down at, down at Disneyland, and they finally he finally convinced them, and so we put it in on this attraction, and it was great, and uh, add really added a lot to it, and um, and so we were going forward, and we're starting, and they were project managers are like ready, you know, they're ready to start digging holes and building the building, and we and we start that, and we start this process. And realized that we had to do some, uh, you know, some cost breakdowns on this thing. So um, they said, oh, okay, well, you can't afford that big roof, concrete roof thing that we normally put up here. We're going to go to a Temcor roof, which was a kind of a metal prefabricated kind of roof. And I was like, I went and looked at them and I just didn't like them at all. And I said, okay. And they go, well, that's too bad because if we want to keep this on budget, you have to, if you want to get this built, we have to do that. So I said, fine, you can go ahead and do that if you let me decorate the exterior of the building. So all the gold that you see in those hexagonal shapes, that's a Temcor, it's a prefabricated kind of thing. But all the other trim and the structures and the, and the ribs and all that. So I made a deal with them and we ended up doing that. And I got the cannon that I wanted. And so the, pro the project continues and I spent, I spent half my time from, from June of 94 to June of 95 when we opened. I spent... 178 nights at the Disneyland hotel, right? I mean, I spent, I was spent just, I had to stay within six months. I just had to stay there. Anyway, so the project's getting developed and, and we're, and we start testing and we start 
you know, it's, it's, and the thing's going really well. I mean, it's really great. You know, um, the, the ride is, we, we, I mean, you're sitting out there. I can't tell you how many nights you sit out there, you know, it's four o'clock in the morning, you know, it's starting to snow. The engineers are trying to get the, you know, the programming correct. And, um, you know, you, uh, you know, you help guys out, you know, you do whatever you can, you offer support, but you know, it's a lot of work. I'm not sure that all the fans know how much work actually go into these parks, but it's quite amazing. And, but it's exciting because you're working on something quite extraordinary, you know? And, um, there were times, you know, one night, one night, uh, you know, I was working on, on, you know, we were building the mountain and I, I, I left, I left work around, um, 10 30, at night. And, um, you know, I decided, and I went off, went home, had dinner, came back. And I came back around 2.30 in the morning uh, just to come back. And I go walk. I park my car behind Discovery Land. I go walking out. And I, and I see this one figure, this lone figure, just walking. And I'm like, like, who's that? You know, who's that? So it ended up being Michael Eisner. And so we kind of walked the park all night. And I'd walk into attractions that were being, you know, developed and programmed and all that. And, uh you know, Michael would walk in and I go, hey, guys, look, Michael's here with me, you know. And so it was good. You know, it was good. People like seeing management actually get in and do things and roll their sleeves up. And so it was kind of cool to, to do that. But um, but uh, as we got closer to the opening for Space Mountain, well, actually, it was called Discovery Mountain. It's still Discovery Mountain. And all the logos, you see the DMs on the mountain. You'll see them on the vehicle. The, the sign said Discovery Mountain on it. And so... I was out there one night and Michael's there with all the management of the people there. And, um, you know, they're, they're saying, you know, we don't think we can market discovery mountain. We know, you know, space mountain is the marquee thing. So Michael goes, okay, fine. It's now space mountain. Um, you know, you, you have no excuses now not to make this thing amazingly great. So, you know, um, so we had to change all the signs. We had to change everything. It was a real pain, you know, but, uh, but you know, that's kind of what, again, last minute kind of things that you end up doing. So um, there were two more things that I wanted to talk about in terms of this. One of them was the uh, Shoot the Moon uh, network TV special that was done. Because what happened is that the attendance, you know, Walt Disney, the Walt Disney Company was talking about bailing out of, of Euro Disneyland because the attendance had gone down and, you know, people were afraid of making their vacations to go. And the company was really angry with them. So, so, um, so. Anyway, they decided, well, we're going to shoot this TV special and we're going to present it all over Europe. We're going to try and promote the park again. So this show was about specifically the man in space program that Walt Disney had. It was about that. And it was about their desire to showcase this particular attraction. So, okay, so so they wanted to do this this uh, TV network. I mean, a European network show It's called Shoot the Moon. And it was about. Walt Disney's history with space travel with the man in space program that I'd mentioned earlier. Secondly, it was about the, about the, the space mountain attraction, literally itself. And then it was about the space mountain development was what was going on. And, <laughs> and I hate to admit it, but I was the star of the show. So they shot me and, and I can tell you it, I, I am not an actor I, I, I look at it, I just cringe. I think it was terrible. I had been traveling so much. I was like, I mean, also there's a, there's a, there's a major story point that makes no sense inside this TV show. But aside from all that, aside from all that, when they showed this thing, they showed it all across Europe. 
and it was a huge success. I mean, I mean, I had kids writing me letters about, you know, gee, I didn't realize the Imagineering was a thing like this, and you could you could actually design stuff like this, and don't know how it is, and didn't didn't know things like that existed, and didn't know anything about space mount or uh, Imagineering, and uh, you know, it was really it was actually kind of cool. I mean, I, I kind of in, enjoyed the fact that, that that there was such popularity about this whole thing. So, um, so you know, it got shown, you know, and it was just about prior to the opening, and. Um, and, and and it was really quite successful. I mean, they Coca Cola did a promotion, and they did like a hundred million Coke cans with these with the Space Mountain logo on it. And you know, it was a huge, huge promotion. And the fun thing, I have to say, the interesting thing about the actual opening of Space Mountain over in Paris was that you know, since the park opened in '92, and this opened in June of '95, what happened is that in those three years. A couple of major things happened. One of them is <clears throat> the, you know, all the cynical French guests who had come to the park had been there for three years. You know, they actually now got what this Disney thing was all about and realized that Disney was all about uh, quality. I mean, really great entertainment. It was really quite spectacular, you know. And the second thing was that the cast members that were originally were originally kind of blasé about the whole thing, really had an, an emotional investment in the park. And they were so excited. And when the opening of Space Mountain came out, I mean, they had a massive opening. I mean, Elton John did a concert. We, they had uh, this parade with all these European celebrities that came through. It was phenomenal. But just, just before that, um, the one thing that I was asked to do was um, – the uh, Philippe Bourguignon, who was the president of, of uh, Euro, or Disneyland Paris, he was like, "Hey, listen, I got all these. I got 125 bankers coming in. You you have to go talk to them. You have to you have to give them. A, you have to tell them about the attraction. You know." So I said, "Fine." You know, and so they were so desperate. They were in the process of trying to refinance the park, and they were you know their finances were tough, and the attendance was down, and 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 Michael Eisner and everybody they were totally nervous is they were totally freaked out they were totally nervous about this because because on one hand the Walt Disney Company is telling them we're, we're going broke you know we're, we're not making any money here number one and number two at the same time we're building a 90 million dollar attraction that you can see over there it's a major icon at the park so there was this dilemma okay so Philippe comes to me and he goes look we're going to have all these bankers come you you've got to you got to talk to them so they had the they they had them in the uh, ballroom at the New York, the New York, New York, New York hotel. And so I get up there and I run through all the renderings and go through the drawings and all these bankers are there and, you know, it's going really well. I mean, they're really, they're really kind of happy about it, you know? And so I said, are there any questions? And the most amazing questions that came out were like, we think this attraction you're doing is fantastic. When are you guys going to start building more stuff? And the administration for Disneyland Paris were shocked. They were like, they thought, they thought they were going to rip me apart going, why are you spending money? Why are you spending? They were going, this is fantastic. So I said, well, this is great. So there's a special treat for you today. All of you are going to ride Space Mountain. It's available for you to ride. And so these guys are fantastic. We took them. They, thought, this is, they were so excited about it. They all get them on a bus. They take them behind the park. We lead them in, and this was the funniest thing I, I, you know, of many, many things that we saw. So these guys would come in with, they all had briefcases, right? And they'd go and they'd load the 
they'd load the train and they put the briefcases, like leave the briefcases right on the loading dock right there, right next to the train. And then they would go off and they go flying in the mountain and get catapult launched up and hear the music and go through the ride. And then, you know, three minutes later, they come screaming back. And these guys were so excited. It was like, and then they come back in and they pick up the briefcases and, you know, could now go home and tell their kids that they had been riding on this ride. And so um, that was actually pretty cool. The, the whole opening experience was just fantastic. I mean, the, the response was huge. It was great. And if you really want the truth, I mean, this is the thing that shocks me today. That was in 95, right? That was what, you know, I don't know. I have to do the math really quickly. But, you know, that was the last major attraction for Disneyland Paris. That was the last major attraction that they've opened over there. They've opened a lot of things at the studio, but in terms of big attractions. Now they've, you know, they've changed the theming and they've made it more, you know, kind of a Star Tours or Star Wars kind of theme and, you know, it doesn't kind of the interior show is probably a good one. I, I haven't seen it, but um, you know, it doesn't match the exterior. But I, you know, I don't think people really matter. Um, I still think you know a lot of people really, 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 really. I get emails from people saying, you know, we really love the original show and the original story, and and it was great. And and the punchline is that we came in under budget. You know, after all that, so it was it was great. It was great. I mean, we barely came in under budget, but it was like by a couple hundred thousand, but it was like $89 million and it was phenomenal. You know, so, so it's been, you know, success ever since, you know, it's been great. And, 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 and probably the crowning thing was for the TEA. I won the, you know, the space mountain. I accepted the award for winning it for the attraction of the year. And, and I, and I said in the speech, what I, I think is really a true statement about this. And it was like what I would consider in quotes, uh, you know, a perfect attraction. It was, wholly invented by Imagineering. It was a project that had new technologies in it, catapult launch system, onboard audio. It increased the attendance by 2 million people in one year. And it was under budget. And I said, this is all what we look for. This is all what we, this is, this is the kind of thing that we all want, you know, in all of our attractions. And so, um, so it was great. It was great. It was fantastic. So and Michael Eisner credited you as saving Disneyland Paris, right? Yeah, I got a note that said, thanks for saving Disneyland Paris. That's not anecdotal. I'll show you. I mean, you can see. I, I've got a red. I got one of the note cards, you know, the note cards that everybody at Disney writes on. Uh, yeah. And I think it must have gone through Marty. So Marty probably didn't like that very much. But, you know, eh, what the heck. So, I mean, I, I mean, like, hey, what can I say? It wasn't, you know, thanks for giving me credit. But, I mean, I mean, you don't do these. It takes hundreds of people to do these projects. But, you know, you end up doing it, you, you end up, you know, like this is you got to fight for it. And then, you know, doing the rendering, and it comes out, comes out just like this is what it was supposed to be, you know, and it had a great team, really. And, and, and what happens then is because when a project like that, it's post opening. So, you know, it was three years afterwards. So everybody else has moved on to, I don't know, whatever, Studio Tour or Animal Kingdom or whatever the hell it was. Um, so you can actually pick and choose the people you really, really want. And you want a small group. And these people are so dedicated and they're just fantastic. They were, they were really fantastic. Absolutely. Well, Tim, I'm going to ask, do you have anything else that you want to touch on before we go? Because if I don't stop myself, you're going to be here all night and all day tomorrow too. So do, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you really want to mention? One thing that I do like to do and I, one thing that I hope um, the people who listen to this, I hope you also listen to the – I like to emphasize the process and what it takes and the number of people and the talent that you need to build these projects, because, um, you know, that's really important. It's really important to me. And I, you know, I, I built, I built 
I don't know. I mean, I don't know how many attractions I built, but I, I know I started and built, you know, four Disney theme parks from scratch, you know, from the day it was, you know, dirt to the day you cut the ribbon. And it takes a lot of talented people. And so I hope that that emphasis came through because it really is true. It really is quite true. And, and it's amazing, too. It's fun. It's like you have families for five years and then you go off to another project and and um, and, you know, people and friends, you know, for your, your entire lifetime because you in a way you fought a battle together. And, and especially when they come out great, it's pretty neat pretty fun so yeah well on a much smaller scale i felt like we fought a battle today trying to get through your entire (laughs) career in under two hours and i feel like we did a good job so on that note tim thank you so much for giving me so much of your time today really thank you for coming on all right kevin great i appreciate it and thank you to everybody listening don't forget to rate review and subscribe to the podcast thank you for visiting defunct land 